As we continue this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm 143. Psalm 143. This evening we'll read the entirety of the psalm, so we'll begin here at the first verse. Psalm 143, starting at verse 1. Hear once again the word of our God. A psalm of David. Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul, He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Say that. Hear me speedily, O Lord, my spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning, for in thee do I trust. Cause me to know thy way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies, I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies. And destroy all them that afflict my soul. For I am thy servant. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this evening the blessing of his word. When it comes to the difficulties that the church and the West are facing, you'll find no shortage of answers given to the question, what is her primary problem? What is the primary difficulty facing the church today? I have these conversations so very frequently. I've had them so frequently over the years, I couldn't tell you how many times these kinds of questions have been asked. And as many times as the question has been asked, so many have the answers been given. What is the problem facing the church in the West today? Well, it's the LGBTQ plus agenda. Or it's liberal theology. Or it's a disinterested youth. Or it's worldly entertainment. You could name any number of difficulties. And friend, all of those have been given, and men and women today are spending all efforts that they can to counteract those problems. Those are the chief problems they'll tell us that the church is facing today. But friend, in my own reflection, I see those things related to the real problem as I might see a fever related to an infection. They're symptoms, not the problem. And you might be surprised what I do think the real problem in the church is today. 
It's atheism. And I'm deadly in earnest. I'm not talking about the Richard Dawkins of our day. I'm not talking about professed pagans, unbelievers. I'm speaking of those within Reformed churches. I'm speaking of those who profess faith. And I am firmly persuaded that the greatest problem within the church is atheism. Now, friend, as we come to the Scriptures, it's helpful to remember that the Scriptures come to us to tutor us out of that very thing, to lead us to think rightly, to think about all things as they stand in relation to the living God, to tutor us, as it were, out of that atheism. And friend, this evening as we take up Psalm 143, I think it's helpful for us to keep that forefront in our minds. That's precisely what the Word of God is doing here, leading us to think not about the world as the world would have us think, to lead us to think about all things as they stand in relation to God, to see ourselves as we live before the face of God, to see all things as they are in some sense connected to the power, to the work, to the decree of God. And so, friend, we take up this psalm to that end, a psalm that instructs us to think about reality rightly. And as we do so, it's important for us to remember, of course, that the psalmist is giving us these things, not in abstract moments of, of reflection. He's not thinking about these things as though he were divorced from reality. He's speaking of these things, tutoring us in these things, as he writes under inspiration of God's Spirit in the furnace of affliction. He's in a very real moment. The man is afflicted. It's very obvious that he is. The enemy, he writes, hath persecuted He hath made me to dwell in darkness. Commentators debate precisely what kind of affliction or the the specific source of this affliction, whether it's Saul or Absalom, uh, we could go on at considerable length debating. But the reality is it doesn't matter. There's a profound point in this psalm that we shouldn't miss. The man here is afflicted. Well, who is the man? A man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart saying here, My spirit is overwhelmed within me. A true believer, an earnest believer, overwhelmed. His affliction, as extensive as it is pressing, pertaining both to the body and to the soul. A friend, arising from that, of course, even the least attentive reader will note that this is a prayer. Arising from that affliction is petition. And there are a number of things that we can say as we look at this psalm, but the first two points that I'd have us see here is that in this prayer, this afflicted man is holding out two things to us. He presents to us, first of all, his identity as he defines it. We get inklings of this as he refers to Jehovah as his God, verse 10. We also get hints, as it were, in verse 8 when he refers back to the loving kindness of God, his covenant mercy. But chiefly we find the identity of the psalmist given to us in the beginning and in the end of the psalm. In verse 2 and in verse 12, the psalmist refers to himself as the Lord's servant. Now immediately, friend, as we look at this, as we see this idea of servanthood really bookending our psalm, it's quick for us, perhaps we're too quick to do it too, to assume that the psalmist is simply saying that his, rela- his relationship to Jehovah is one of an obedient servant to his master. That certainly is implied. 
But it's helpful for us to remember that as the scriptures present to us the idea of servanthood, there's much more involved. Take, for instance, the law. When the law would hold out to us the idea of a servant and his, and his relationship to his master, we understand that that relationship was not purely linear. That is, it was not purely the idea that the servant was simply obedient to his master, that that was included. Rather than being linear, the idea was there were obligations that were reciprocal. Instead of being linear, if you will, it was circuitous. There were obligations that the servant obviously had to his master, namely obedience and all of his lawful commands. But the master himself had certain obligations over his servants. For instance, in the law, if you were the head of a household and you had servants in your home, you were to take care that their well-being was secured. You would provide for them all that was necessary for their life and their well-being while you were in the home. And that pertained even to spiritual things. You remember, of course, in the fourth commandment, the observance of the Sabbath day also required servants to be given that Sabbath rest. Part of that, of course, was simply the command of God, but the other part was an act of mercy. The master of the house must allow spiritual reflection for his servants. But in Numbers 15, it goes even further. What's striking is the master of the house not only had to provide for the servant while he was in the home, but even as the servant intended to leave the home, the master had to secure all that was necessary for the servant's survival outside of his household. In other words, the master had to, had to secure all that was necessary for his well-being even after he left his house. That too, friend, in the scriptures is a pervasive idea when we come to the idea of servanthood. There is a sense, of course, in which the psalmist at many times speaks of himself as a servant to set before himself, his readers, and before the Lord his own obligation to obey all of God's commands. But we find in the Psalter as well this idea of servanthood pertaining to that latter sense. The psalmist invoking God as a master who had certain responsibilities, covenant responsibilities for his servants. Just for instance, take Psalm 123. As the eyes of servants look under the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden under the hand of her mistress, note this, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until, or so that, he has mercy upon us. The idea of servanthood in Psalm 123 is very clear. He waits as a servant upon the Lord's mercy as his master. And in Psalm 143, our psalm this evening, we can't divorce ourselves from that other concept either. Certainly the psalmist acknowledges his obligation to the Lord to obey. But strikingly, he praises God's servant. He makes petitions as God's servant for mercy. Beloved, what you see then in Psalm 143 is very clearly a man who sees himself, who stands in a unique relationship with the Lord Jehovah. He is, Jehovah is his God. And he stands in relation to him as his servant, with all of the obligation falling upon him and all of the mercy that was promised to him, that obligation falling upon the Lord. This is a covenant friend that we have here that is the bedrock of our psalm. And of course it is a covenant that is struck in grace. Now that's the psalmist's identity. And from that identity you find the psalmist pursuing a particular method as he makes petitions out of this gracious covenant. 
In the first six verses, you have the psalmist, first of all, making petitions as he refers back to his own condition. He refers to those external difficulties which he's facing as well as those internal. And from those things, his petitions are incited. But as you come to verses 7 to 12, you'll notice here that the psalmist makes ten very specific petitions. Followed by ten very specific arguments. We'll come back to that, but as you look at verses 7 to 12, you'll notice he begins with a cry. And then concludes each line with a reason. Like I said, we'll come back to that in due time. But overall, friends, what you see in this psalm, as we look at it in its entirety, is just this. We find a man praying for temporal deliverance. He's presently afflicted, and here's the basis for his petition. He pleads as God's servant, and he pleads for this mercy from God who is his God, his covenant God. Friend, as you look at this text, there's a very basic theme that comes to us, isn't there? The psalmist is looking for aid for body, for both body and soul in this life. And from whence does he expect it? Why should he hope for it? Well, it's just this. That good may only be expected through God's gracious covenant. There is no nuance, and the lack of nuance is emphatic. Good may only be expected through God's gracious covenant. That really is the underlying theme of all Psalm 43. And I want us to examine that just under two headings. I want us to see that as the principles that are brought to us in this psalm demonstrate as much. And then I want us to see as well, finally, the practices that emerge from these basic themes. Now, friend, as we take up the principles, I'll say that, first of all, that will be the majority of our time this evening. Just examining what really is the foundation of this psalm. But as we do so, it's important for me to tell you that there are many principles that we we find in this text. But I'll distill them. Uh, into into two basic propositions. The first one is perhaps the most basic, the least surprising. And that is underlying this psalm is the idea, first and foremost, that God has made promises. God has made promises. And we're acquainted with this idea in the very first verse when the psalmist here refers to the Lord's faithfulness. In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness... The word faithfulness there is the idea of covenant keeping. He will fulfill his word. And then he says, to add to that, he says, for thy name's sake and for thy righteousness' sake. Verse 11. In other words, he here invokes God's word. As faithfulness presupposes a word already given. And more than that, he strengthens this request by then calling upon God's righteousness. Saying that even his name... Here is the basis for his cry. My friend, why does he do that, as staggering as that is? How does he see that his petition is somehow, somehow brought before God so that the Lord's faithfulness must be invoked, such that his name, as it were, and even his righteousness must be cited? My friend, the reason for that is that when God made promise to Abraham, it says the writer of the Hebrews, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. The idea is the very same thing that is given to us in Genesis 22. Where there the Lord says, by myself have I sworn. 
saith the Lord. The psalmist can speak in these terms. Because God has made promise and He's brought His own name to bear in the promise. He's sworn in His own name because no other, no greater name could be found. And so the psalmist can rightly pray for thy righteousness sake. What is the psalmist saying there? Friend, whenever he says this, we shouldn't miss how profound the statement is. He's saying nothing less than For thy name's sake, for thy righteousness sake, lest your name be defiled with covenant breaking, your righteousness vacated. This is the most emphatic way one could imagine dealing with Jehovah, the living God. For your righteousness sake, fulfill your word. My friend, why does the Lord bind himself in this way? That his people might deal with him in this sense. The writer of the Hebrews puts it to us in this sense. He says, willing more abundant to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. He has so sworn. It's a boon for the faith of God's people. But friend, as the psalmist looks at the word that has been given. That word that the psalmist calls upon God to fulfill. We need to recognize that that word has content to it. In other words, that word holds out to us the counsel of God with regard to his people. It's, that revel- it's a revelatory promise in which God tells us how he will deal with his own. And friend, that becomes the basis then for this whole petition. What God has revealed, what God has promised with regard to his dealings with his people. And friend, without this, how directionless are his people's prayers. Without this, how groundless is their hope. Or to put it another way, friend, it is presumption not to have such grounds. Robert Trail writes it this way. Presumption works this way. The, the praying presumer may have mercy in his eye, but he hath, no, he hath no promise in his eye. Take heed to this, he writes. The reason why believers ask so great things of God is because God hath promised so great things to them. In other words, friend, the psalmist looks to the promises of God And he prays so boldly only because he has a promise in mind. Only because he eyes what God has covenanted, sworn in his own name. Now friend, that does raise the question. What is the extent of this promise? What is the extent of the promise the psalmist has in view? As we look at at the scriptures, the answer is very clear to us. The psalmist puts it this way, this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. He is our guide in the present and he promises to be our guide even through death. The apostle puts it another way. Christians have the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Those who are godly have the promise of the life that now is. And of that which is to come. Christ puts it this way. Christians, he says, shall receive an hundredfold now in this time and in the world to come. Life everlasting. Here's the extent of the promise, friend. According to scripture itself, it belongs to this life and the life that is to come. And really, if we distill the promise of the covenant down merely to this. And merely, I say, friend, not irreverently at all. Basically, in this sense, the covenant comes to us promising us nothing less than God. 
And here is how that promise is given to us. The psalmist says, Thou art my portion, refuge and my portion, in the land of the living. Psalm 142.5 And that this is true in the life to come, he says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee? In other words, friend, the promise that belongs to the believer... The promise that this believer invokes in Psalm 143 over temporal affliction is a promise that pertains both to this life and to the life that is to come. We'll come back to that moment. We'll come back to that theme in just a moment. But it does lead us to our second principle. And that is that God deals uniquely with his people. This is a theme that really underlies our text in great form. Notice, friend, how the psalmist makes the distinction himself. In thy faithfulness, in thy righteousness, deliver me. That's the psalmist's description. This is what he says belongs to the one who is called the Lord's servant. Deliverance. And this is an act, again I reiterate, an act of faithfulness on the part of God. An act of righteousness. But don't miss this either. Friend, that as you read Psalm 143... As an act of that self-same faithfulness. As an act of that self-same righteousness. The psalmist says the enemies of God will be destroyed. Friend, grasp, if you can, just for a moment, how profound that distinction is. The self-same faithfulness that delivers the psalmist is the self-same righteousness that that breathes wrath upon God's enemies. How striking is that, friend? But it gets even more striking, I think, as we look at this throughout the rest of Scripture. As we look at this, friend, it brings us back to the second verse, doesn't it? The psalmist really finds himself in verse 2, dealing with that distinction very, very really and very existentially. In verse 2 he says, Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living Be justified. Here is the servant of the Lord crying, Do not enter into judgment with me. Now friend, first of all, this is a strange request, isn't it? It's a request that is made to the one who is called the judge of all the earth. The one whom the scriptures ask, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He asks this of the one who says, If I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. He, speak, he now addresses the one of whom the scriptures say, None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? And yet he says to the judge of all the earth, Do not enter into judgment with thy servant. And then, friend, as we come to this second verse, you'll find he gives a reason. This peculiar request is given a reason. And here's the reason. For no man living shall be justified. A friend, just for a moment and very briefly... Imagine yourself sitting in a courtroom and seeing a convicted criminal stand before the bar. The judge is prepared at this stage to pronounce justice. He comes to sentencing and the criminal stands and says, wait, wait. The judge peers over the bench and asks, why? The criminal responds, well, you see, if you pass judgment on me, You'll pass judgment on everybody who has committed crimes like me. It's nonsensical, isn't it? That really is the force of justice, isn't it? All of those who are guilty of this offense ought to be brought to this bar. 
And yet the criminal, very nonsensically, says, well, because all of these criminals could be brought before the bar of justice, don't pass sentence. What do we make of this text then? Friend, the plainest meaning here is just this. If you judge me according to the law's rigor, I, like all men, will be condemned. In other words, here you find the psalmist confessing he's a sinner, but he's persuaded. He is persuaded. He is one with whom God will not deal according to the rigor of the law. In other words, friend, he sees himself, well, as he sees himself as the people of God are described in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. In other words, friend, he sees himself as not under the law's rigor. And from that basis, he pleads for God not to deal with him according to the sentence and rigor of the law. Now that leads us to observe here just the occasion. Briefly, friend, this second verse becomes even more strange to us if we consider what was its cause. He was afflicted in the present. He was oppressed in the present. It seems rather strange, doesn't it, that all of a sudden we are thinking primarily about the final judgment. That we're thinking about one as they stand before God, either justified or condemned. And all of this in the context of temporal present oppression. Why? Well, friend, first of all, you need to recognize that the psalmist is looking at this through the lens of Scripture. Oppressors are called men which are the Lord's hand. They're called the rod of the Lord's anger. Oppressors, says, the Lord says to them, thou art, his, thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. In other words, the psalmist reasons thus, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Amos 3.6 He traces all things back to God. And so, friend, the force of the second verse is just this. He says, As God of providence, do not deal with me according to the rigor of the law, as you do your enemies. But remember my state before you, as one to whom you will not impute iniquity, and to deal with me accordingly. That's the sense. Friend, don't deal with me as one who is outside of Jesus Christ. One who is still under the curse of the law. But even now, deal with me as one to whom the Lord will not impute iniquity. What's striking in this, friend, is that the psalmist sees that there are real and temporal implications for a man who stands reconciled to God. This really brings us back to our introduction. This is really the thing that exposes our atheism. The psalmist presupposes that there is a real distinction in God's temporal dealings between those who are reconciled to him and those who aren't. And friend, this is all throughout the scriptures. The Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. The Lord, says Peter, knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under the day of judgment to be punished. It is a righteous thing, says the apostle, with God to recompense in this life tribulation to them that trouble you. Moreover, the judgment of God, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. And here is the present act 
of God's judgment. Yes, God still judges today. This is what the Apostle says in Romans 1, 28. Here is their judgment. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. There is still a distinction made between the household of faith, the true Israel of God, and Egypt, His true enemies. And even in this life is that distinction real. And friend, all I have to do to you is point you back to our text. The text that we read before Psalm 143, Romans 8. Note what the the Apostle says there. He says here, all of these things, all things work together for good. To whom? To all, universally. To those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Friend, that is the point. And then as you move to the end of Romans 8, you see what the Apostle means. Even in this life, they are made more than conquerors. Even in temporal difficulties, they are made more than conquerors. There is a real distinction between God's dealings with the wicked, those who are not reconciled in Him, and those who stand righteous in Jesus Christ, who are not under the law's rigor. I mean, friend, this shows us, doesn't it, the foolishness of a kind of christened deism that says in this life there's no real difference. Between the two. I mean friend how foolish is that? When a man hears the gospel. What is he hearing? He's hearing that he may be reconciled. Not only to the God of the, of the final judgment. But the, to the God of all providence. That's what he's being told in the gospel. Through Jesus Christ reconciliation. With the God who holds your very breath in his hand. Is offered. And would there be no distinction. Between being reconciled to that God and being his enemy. It's foolish, friend. But that's the very thing our atheism teaches us. That reconciliation with God has no bearings on the present. That reconciliation with God is simply something for a future date. Something that concerns us only at the end. Not so the psalmist. When he thinks of the bar of God... He thinks that there are real and temporal implications that come from him being reconciled to the God of heaven. Such that even upon that basis he could pray for deliverance. Now you might say to me, well then what of the prosperity preacher who says, well, if you simply have faith, you'll receive the Lamborghini. You'll have all kinds of temporal wealth. Well friend, I just direct them to the words of Christ. There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake in the Gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time. That's the promise that pertains to this life. But then note what he says. Houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions. And in the world to come, eternal life. All of these things, persecution included, belong to the covenant, belong to the promise. So, friend, the foolishness of the prosperity gospel is just they have the world's definition of good. They can't say, as biblical piety does, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. You see, friend, the psalmist here looks at his state before God, and he says he expects, may even plead for, 
good from the hand of the Lord because of it. A friend, as we close, just very briefly, the practice. I said before that our primary focus would be the principles, but now let's come to the last part of this psalm. As the psalmist reflects upon his state before God, he comes to several petitions. And as I said before, each petition is really backed by an argument. And as you look at this, I want you to notice, friend, first of all, that the man here feels a kind of disparity between his state and his condition. His state is right with God. He's justified, but his condition is one of misery, one of oppression, one of difficulty. Well, friend, what does he do? First of all, in the fifth verse, we're told that he stirs himself up to meditate. He gives it to us in three terms. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. My friend, it's a striking thing, isn't it? The psalmist here is going back in his mind to things of old, not things present. He's looking back as one who stands in covenant with God, and he looks at God's dealings of the past for comfort. Now why? Why would he go back to the annals of God's word and there find comfort for the present? Friend, before I answer that question, let me say that the psalmist is not alone here. The psalmist in Psalm 77 writes thus, But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also in all thy work and talk of thy doings. Or take Psalm 22. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. This is really the habitual practice of God's people. They reflect and they reflect affectionately on God's dealings in the past. And why? Friend, it comes back to the most basic point that we made at the very beginning. The psalmist sees himself in covenant. But it's more than that. He sees himself in the self-same covenant with the self-same God that did all of those wonders in the past. He is as much in the covenant as Abraham was. He is as much in the covenant as David was. The believer can reason this way. And all of the blessings and all of the kindnesses that God did to them, friend, those things were known to them because of the self-same covenant that the Christian is in today. And so, friend, as he looks through the annals of God's dealings with the people of old, what does he see? He sees reminders that those who are in this covenant know by experience God's blessing in this life and in the life to come. So he meditates. And that meditation spurs him on, secondly, to the exercise of faith. He's been doing it all along, but this is really a further inciting of it. In verse 6, you have this. He says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. The act of stretching here is the idea that he is looking and holding to God in earnest. And that comes necessarily after the fifth verse. In other words, as he's meditated, this has ignited his piety. His seeking is renewed. In verse 7, you have the same thing. He reasons from his case. Now, friend, he can only do this because he sees his identity according to the covenant. If he were an enemy of God, he couldn't reason from his case, that of being afflicted. That's what, that's what all who are outside of Christ deserve. But no, by faith, he sees himself as one who is reconciled to God. And from that, he makes his argument. 
Verses 8 and 9. Specifically, he mentions his faith here as a reason why the Lord should hear him. And then verses 10 and 11, he cites his covenant. He cites the oaths that God has made. In verse 12, once again, we come back to his citation of his identity. He is the Lord's servant. And that is an argument, something that he brings before the Lord for him to hear. Then thirdly and finally, and this is perhaps the most obvious point, but through all of this, he's engaged in prayer. But I want you to notice, friend, that this prayer is expectant and it's specific. As he prays, friend, he prays and expects according to the covenant. He does not wander from it. His gaze never moves to another thing. He looks at himself as he stands in covenant. He looks at the promises that have been made to him as made in the covenant. And so he prays and he expects accordingly. Now, friend, we close with this. Just a few brief words of application. This is, first of all, something that should lead us to examination. The psalmist never wanders in his prayer from his state or from his covenant relationship with Jehovah. The covenant is his all. It is everything to him. Is that true of us? Do we long for things from God only as they're given to us through the covenant? When we go to God in prayer, are we mindful? Friend, are we mindful that we may only do so with boldness through the covenant? You see, friend, so many pray, so many go to God naked, simply making requests based upon their own misery or their own difficult condition. I mean, our prayer, I mean, prayer meetings throughout this land and throughout all kind, all other lands could easily be shut down with a very basic question, couldn't they? After the prayer requests have been made, somebody could simply stand up and ask, why should God answer these? Why should God answer these? The psalmist has an answer. Because of the covenant. Why should God do good for his people? Not because of the psalmist himself, but because of the covenant. Is the covenant of grace our all beloved? Secondly, friend, I want you to notice here that the psalmist here is a man of faith. And this shows us by example that even though his state is right with God, his experience is often, often seemingly disparate, often seemingly contrary to his identity in Christ. Though his state is glorious as he himself is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, his condition is often one of misery. And the point of this, friend, is just this. That is the ordinary activity of God's people. Seeing that distinction. Wrestling in that distinction. But by faith, holding to every promise in spite of all the sense to the contrary. But I'll close with an exhortation. Friend, lay hold of this charter that the psalmist does. This charter being the covenant over which Christ stands as mediator. And that covenant in which every promise is made in Christ. Lay hold of that charter this evening. No preacher can assume 
No preacher is at liberty to assume that every person that he speaks to is converted. And so let me address, first of all, the unconverted man. Friend, you have heard many people, perhaps, tell you that you need to come to Christ. And if you press them, they might say, well, you need to come to Christ because, first of all, you're mortal. And secondly, secondly, if you do not come to Christ and you cross death's threshold, you will find yourself in hell. Therefore, come to Christ. And friend, whoever told you that, they told you truth. Certain truth, fundamental truth. But this text tells us even something more than that, doesn't it? I won't call you to come to Christ because he will do good for you at the end. Friend, I'm going to call you to come to Christ not because there is a danger that awaits you in the time to come. I will call you to come to Christ because you need him in the present. Let me put it to you this way. Friend, because there is that distinction between how God deals with the godly and how God deals with the ungodly, the unconverted. I want you to recognize, friend, that you are unreconciled to the God of providence, to the God who holds your breath in the present. Practically, what does that mean? That means that every grief that you have, every affliction that you know, every migraine, Every difficulty, every pain, every weakness. These things are not sent to make you stronger. They are not sent for your betterment. Friend, they are foretastes and really hell begun on earth. You need Christ today. You need to be reconciled to God today. Because if you are not, friend, here's the word of God. God stands angry with the wicked every day. His bow is always bent against his enemies. That is your present condition. And so you need Christ now, friend. You need Christ now and for today and at this moment. I'll read to you one of our old divines, Robert Bruce, as he put it to us this way. He said, the Christian's affliction floweth from the favor, love, and mercy of God in Christ Jesus, and tendeth to their great profit and commodity, namely that they being corrected here should not perish hereafter with the wicked. But as for the affliction of the reprobate, it floweth from the hot wrath and indignation of God upon them, as a righteous judge beginning their punishment here, which shall last hereafter. So affliction that is in them a part of justice to the Christian is a merciful correction. Come to Christ now, because you need him now. But for the believer, that comfort is there as well, isn't there? Come to Christ now afresh. Lay hold of the covenant even as the psalmist does. And you'll find that even in the flame, you have reason to take heart. Even in the flame, you can find that these things, even the difficulties, 
issue forth from Christ and out of the covenant. On August 19th, 1531, John Blaney, rather, was condemned to be burned at the stake. And before he was taken to the stake, he said these words. As they called him to take heart, to persevere to the end, he replied, When the sailor goes on board his ship and launches out into the stormy sea, he is tossed to and fro by the waves. But the hope of reaching a peaceful haven makes him to bear the danger. My voyage is beginning, but whatever storms I shall feel, my ship shall soon reach the port. He said those words and he made his way to the pyre. And as he stood, as he stood chained to the stake, he repeated Psalm 143. Our psalm. And twice he repeated the second verse. Enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man live and be justified. When the flames were lit, he continued to repeat Psalm 143. I stretch forth my hands unto thee, verse 6. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. And then he closed with these words. Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I believe. Bilney looked at the flames that were engulfing him. He looked at all that was around him that seemed to cry out his condemnation. And by faith... He said that these flames would not touch him. By faith, as he stood in Christ, he knew that these things, even these things, were meant for his good. He went to his state, as it was in Christ, for comfort. He went, friend, as a man who really believed that in the present, his standing with Almighty God had real implications for the present and for the time to come. May the Lord make us such people. May he rid us of our atheism and make us such people. Amen.